0: Hi, I'm Joanne Ferrian, host of Room 20 with the LA Times, and this is OPP.
1: God bless everybody, and welcome to another episode of OPP. Other people's podcasts, is America's number one discovery platform that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is award-winning journalist and Columbia University journalism professor Joanne Therrien, host of the current number one podcast in the country, Room 20. From the LA Times studio and the team that brought you Dirty John and Man in the Window comes Room 20, a story about a man who's been unconscious for 15 years, his identity, and the truth about his accident. Joanne's two-year journey is filled with twists and turns. At the end of the series, she finally reveals who this man really is. I met up with Joanne on the campus of Columbia University, and we chat about our new life here in New York City, her career in journalism, we get into our podcaster's picks, and of course, we get into our dope show, Room 20. So let me introduce you to Joanne Farion. We're recording now. Hello. What up, Joanne? <laughs> how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm amazing. First of all, it's nice to be here at Columbia. This interview is hilarious because it started off with you being in San Diego. That's right. And then midway through being like, yeah, so, you know, I'm a professor at Columbia. And I'm like, wait, like, columbia the country <laughs> or like, the university and you're like no in new york city and i'm like wait can we please do this uh in person and you're like yeah
0: well i'm glad you came all the way out here no
1: it's a pleasure it's like a it's a nice little xanadu mm-hmm. word of the day xanadu yeah that's yeah, what uh, columbia word. feels like it's like a little oasis oh, away from the hustle and bustle of the city it's very calming and relaxing
0: it is isn't it it's yeah nice see the, the campus is pretty yeah, yeah. and like yeah. seeing like
1: new york city is one of those places where you just don't see youthful like young people,
0: uh huh.
1: you see like 20, you always see drinking age, drinking age (laughs) and above, but you don't see 18, 19, 20-year-olds in like one mass place. It's really nice, really refreshing. Well,
0: good. I'm glad you like being here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how long have you been in New York City?
0: Only a year. This is my second year teaching. So I moved here last August for this position. Yeah. uh, Before that, I was in San
1: Diego. And how are you like in New York? How are you making the transition?
0: Oh, so, you know, um, I still spend... Two months in the summer in San Diego. That's where my son lives. Okay. And um, I have to tell you, I got back late last night and I just thought, New York is so hard. <laughs> like, I, I have a bag full of laundry that I have to like walk eight blocks with. And like my, I put, I, I opened up two suitcases and I have no place to walk in my apartment. Everything's tiny, but you know, it's New York, right? It's hard, but it's New York.
1: But but are our, our, you should get the delivery service.
0: Well, I tried that, but then you I don't have a doorman or a door person.
1: So are you going to walk the, up? Yeah, yeah. The delivery person maybe would come walk up the walk up and take your laundry for you.
0: But then I'd have to be home because the door's locked. Oh, this is yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. No, because I looked into that. Like, but yeah. what about on Saturdays? Yeah, I guess I could do it on yeah. Saturdays. Look, you're solving my laundry problem. Oh. I just thought I had to find a new apartment yeah, with I, laundry. I, I don't touch
1: laundry. I don't do that. No, <laughs> no. I do no? the drop off.
0: Okay. I do the drop-off, I did but I have to walk. Drop-off. Oh, delivery. See, I need the delivery. But it, it depends yeah. on like where
1: I'm living. If I move and the delivery spot's a little farther away or it's more. Yeah, like, if it's yeah. across the street, I have no problems dropping yeah, it off. yeah. And luckily, I'm across the street from the laundry now.
0: Yeah, mine's eight blocks.
1: Oh, yeah. I know. oh, I'm here on the west side, too near the water. I am,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's brutal. But it's, it's it's okay. It only
1: gets better from here, I promise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's my only complaint, so that's not too bad, right? Uh,
1: is this your first time teaching at a university? It is. Wow. Um
0: I love it. I absolutely Jumping right into the love ideas. it. it- <laughs> It's it's been uh beyond my wildest expectations, actually. It's uh the students um they really, really want to be here, right? They've worked hard to get here and you can tell. Yeah. Um they um very nice people. Um no, it's it, it's been my first year was a great first year. Um I'm excited about year two. Uh I teach reporting, right? Basic reporting, when students come in, and then uh, a writing course. And actually, my the second semester, I teach an audio course. Oh, so, get out. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, so it works well, having that, a podcast. Right. I
1: was going to ask you, uh, when I was in school, I went to school for journalism, but I only went for like two years. But uh, not, I was not like these kids at Columbia. I was out being a rock star in college. But uh, how has podcasting played a role in the way that teachers are teaching journalism now? Uh, is, is, has it changed at all? Is it coming up in conversation and lectures and stuff like that? Well,
0: what, I think what's happening, the thing that comes up is how do we tell stories now? We tell them across platforms, right? It, we don't just tell them in a newspaper, right? That isn't journalism. Journalism can be, it's video, it's audio, it's all these different sort of platforms now that we're we're sort of getting information and stories across. I think what's happening with podcasts, we have lots of students who come in and they, and they want to work in podcasting. So I think that is what I'm hearing. I don't know if that's different. I've only, like I say, this is my second year. Um, I think the great thing is that um, I, so in terms of the kind of podcasts that I want to continue to produce and, and the one that, that is out now, um, they're journalistic, right? Like it's an investigative story. Yeah. And I think the great thing is that students are coming here, they're becoming journalists first. And then it's like, okay, now how do you want to execute, right? Well, how do you want to tell the stories? And a lot of them are now saying, yeah, I want to do podcasting.
1: Uh, how did you fall in love with journalism?
0: Oh, you know, um, so I remember in elementary school, um, I think I was in grade six, and I I started a newspaper <laughs> in my elementary school. And I can't, I think it was my dad actually photocopied. I didn't even know what a newspaper—I like, mean, I didn't know how to make a newspaper, but I started one. I didn't think I was going to be a journalist, though. Um, I thought I was going to be a lawyer because I wanted to represent people, okay. right? I wanted to represent people who were accused of stuff and they weren't really guilty and I was going to fight for them. Um, and then I, I did a, my uh, Bachelor of Arts degree in English literature, and then I was going to go to law school. I wrote my LSAT, all that kind of stuff. And then I just thought one day, um, I think I want to be a journalist. I mean, I was. my family always read the newspaper. I always watched television news, always listened to uh, information radio. Yeah. So um, just, it was literally like I had this sudden change of heart. So then I enrolled in a two-year journalism program in Winnipeg at, a red, at red River College, a place, a school no one has ever heard of, <laughs> which I loved. It was an amazing, amazing, intense program. And uh, it's what I've been doing ever since. I absolutely love it.
1: You know who you remind me of, your energy? You remind me of uh, April O'Neil. Remember the reporter from the Ninja Turtles? No. <laughs> So in the Ninja Turtles, there was like, you know, the, the four turtles. But then their homegirl was April O'Neil, who was a news reporter.
0: I'm totally Googling her. Yeah, but yeah. your
1: energy reminds me of, uh, of April O'Neil. Okay. Maybe she's Canadian. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, what's life like in Canada? Like, What's it like growing up there?
0: So really, well, I grew up in Winnipeg, the north end of Winnipeg. Um, And any of your Canadian listeners or anybody from Winnipeg will know the north end. Okay. It's... Um, on the, uh, I grew up in the corner of Selkirk and Mackenzie, next to Hank's Auto, and, and Hank was my uncle. Okay. And it wasn't even like a real residential area. There were like a couple of these rentals that Hank owned, and we, <laughs> my family rented one of them. And there was all like pool halls. There was like a funeral home, little corner stores, stuff like that. It was a really, really sort of rough um, area. And um, I have two older sisters and a younger brother. And, you um, know, I think it's... Uh, Anybody from the North End wears it like a badge, you know, it just, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. And, um, I lived in, I lived in Winnipeg actually until, until my middle twenties, I got married, I got married and then I, then I started following my husband everywhere. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, and then my, I got a divorce, and then I moved to New York. Hey, you know what
1: happens? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My parents got a divorce, too. It's like, uh, wait, so so uh, where did you live? You said you followed your husband around the country. Where mm-hmm. did you travel around to? So then
0: I went to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and I worked at the CBC. Say that again. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Is that in Canada. It's in Canada. Okay. It's The province um, west of Manitoba, okay. my home province, and I worked for the CBC there. And uh, my son was born there. Okay. And then we moved to Calgary, Alberta, and I worked for the CBC there as well. Okay. And then we moved to San Diego, and then I started working for the NPR and PBS affiliate in San Diego. How
1: long were you in San Diego? Uh,
0: I was in San Diego since 2001, so a really, really oh, long wow. time. Yeah. You're, like, yeah. really r- yeah. rooted there. I'm American now, kind of. Yeah. Wow. 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 Mm-hmm. We're going
1: to take a quick break. Joanne, yeah. we get back. we get into your podcast. Room 20. And we're back. <laughs> um, so, how did you first learn about the medium of podcasting?
0: Oh, I think because I've been in public radio for a long time. Um, it was always just podcasting, right? I remember—I um, want to say it was like seven years ago. Um, I have this neighbor. Well, I don't. He's not my neighbor anymore because I moved, but him and his best friend, they were the funniest guys and they uh, went to college together and they're really into music. And they went to see like any band you mentioned, right? They went to see them and they'll tell you where they sent, uh, saw them, what they were wearing, what they drank that night. They have all these funny stories and then they'll play like the record or the album. And I thought they should have a podcast. Car Talk is an old um, NPR radio show. Uh-huh. They should be Car Talk guys, but You know, for bands and and all that kind of stuff. And so I actually made a demo of this show for my uh, program director and said they should be a podcast. These guys would be amazing. Um, But it never went anywhere. So so it wasn't something that I thought, oh, I really want to do this, but I, I love a good idea. I just love a good idea. And I thought it's a great idea. And these guys are so funny and I'd listen to them. Um they should they should still get their show if anyone wants to produce there them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should <laughs> they should have a show.
1: How did you get compelled to to tell this story like in particular? Like where did it
0: So I start it probably it goes back to 2008. My mother died suddenly. And um I became kind of obsessed about the way that people die. I I started reading about, like, what do you look like in your final moments of death? Like, I was—for all of these reasons in terms of how my mom died, I wanted to—I had all these unanswered questions. I want, so then I wanted to report on End of Life, right? So I thought, okay, being an investigative reporter, this is kind of a chance— to answer my own personal questions, yet still do this kind of reporting. So I I also spent a year reporting on hospice. I wanted to document again how people, what are people's final months like, weeks, days. And it kind of led me down this path. And then I find myself in this place on this unit where people kept are kept alive on life support. What you what you find out in episode one, I'll reveal it now, the podcast, because I disclosed it fairly early on, is that my mother was in a medically induced coma, and the doctor asked my sister and I, what would your mother have wanted? And I have to make a decision in that moment. And this decision haunts me. And so it kind of propels me to do this kind of reporting.
1: Um, if, let me just ask you a very simple question. Is Describe room 20 for the audience?
0: Um, So if you've been in a hospital room or a nursing home room, right, you know about how big they are. Maybe um, I'm going to get the dimensions wrong, but you know, it's like an oversized bedroom, really. There are three beds. um, And according to California uh, regulations, the beds can be three feet apart. So quite literally, they're three feet apart. At the end of the room are patio doors. And beyond the patio doors is a tiny little sort of patio with a giant hedge. So, um, but it's sort of the irony is like nobody in this room can walk or get out of bed. So, I mean, you know, I'm the only one who ends up opening the patio doors. But so three beds and there are three men in room 20. Um, When you go inside the first door, there's a guy they call Papa and he's in his 70s, an an old guy. He actually is conscious, but he has a a breathing tube in his uh, throat and he has a feeding tube. And he grunts when he wants something. In the next bed, when I first got to room 20, it was empty, but that changes. And then in the final bed is the man that they call 66 Garage. And again, he has these tubes. So it's it's, it's, it's a it looks like a hospital room with a lot of medical equipment, not a lot of room to move. Um, and there's a black folding chair in the corner. And that's where I end up spending so much of my time.
1: I heard that you were there for- Two years. It was. It was two years of reporting.
0: Yeah. So it's funny because the day I I so I started reporting on these nursing home units in 2014. So on this unit, and then towards the end of 2014 is when I find out about this guy in room 20. But it's not until nearly a year later that I quit my job in 2015, and that's when I go off and I basically embed myself. When I say embed, I mean that that I I. I go to Room 20, sometimes daily for hours every day, sometimes weekly, on and off. And um, so basically, by the spring of 2017, lots of changes happen and sort of Room 20 is no longer Room 20. So yeah, it's about two years.
1: Um, I don't want to give away too much of the story. I I want folks to go and listen to the podcast. But what did you... You know, I always want my, when I interview folks, I want them to walk away learning something. And I learned, I want them to learn something, but then something, I learned something personally for myself that I take away. What did you personally take away from this story of uh, 66 Garage that surprised you? Uh,
0: so much. <laughs> um, I mean, so things things I learned journalistically just like discovery i mean some of the issues i learned i learned so much more about consciousness what is consciousness how do we evaluate it how, how you know how do we determine who's conscious and who's not i learned a lot about um when someone so, so i had done reporting on people who were kept alive this way but being there so much um, i learned a lot more about what life looks like when you're kept alive in that way i also you know i i am um, I've been a reporter so long, right? And um, I've always mostly worked for public media or, you know, I Source, which is investigative. So for like where we follow a lot of rules, right? Journalism actually has a lot of rules. If you if you do. Right, it it there's a lot of rigor behind what we do and then we have lots of layers of of editing and managers and how we do things, right? And and most newsrooms have certain protocols and rules. And and I and I I'm a rule follower. <laughs> I mean, I just am, right? And um so when I quit, I I quit my job you know, I didn't think it through. It really was a pretty spontaneous decision, and I have to tell you, for a long time, it was—it looked like it, probably one of the worst decisions I had ever made in my life. Um, yeah, it's all worked out now, but it, for a while, it was really, really bad. And um, so, when I did this, part of me just—I wanted to go and and do this reporting and this investigation and be a reporter, and not answer to anyone but myself. You know, like I, I, um, I wanted to go like, and I literally, I mean, I went all throughout Southern California. I went to Mexico, I went to Canada, I went to Ohio and I just wanted to do it for me and not be calling in at the end of the day and reporting to an editor who said, well, you can't do that. Or you got to come back now or no, don't even bother with that. Like, I just wanted to go and be a reporter for me and, you know, and find this out. And, um, and i realized how how much i liked it but but also i mean you can't like realistically we couldn't we couldn't run newsrooms like that but so i learned a lot more about reporting i learned that as journalists we you know if we go somewhere for a day and we parachute in there's only so much of the story we can really know right Let's say you do it for a week. Well, maybe we know a little more. We cover it for three months. Or I was lucky in my past job. I sometimes worked on things for an entire year, right? I was not the only thing I worked on, but I got a lot of time. What I learned too is, you know, immersive journalism, the the kind where you really say, okay, I'm gonna like sit here in room 20, you know, for however long you start to, you also start to form relationships with the people that you're reporting on, which is very like new—not new, but it's a thing we don't do as journalists. But I found that I think I told a more true story, and I say more true because you know, if I was there for five more years, my story might be different, right? Yeah, like my ending would be different too. Your ending is where you decide to end your story. So I, I found that the, 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 there's so much. We, we tell a different story, right? The longer that we stay.
1: Oh, when did you know uh, that this story had to be a podcast?
0: Um, I thought this story was a book. I thought this story was podcast. A lot of other people didn't think this story was a book or a podcast. <laughs> I had a lot of rejection. A lot of rejection. Um, so, I so it goes back to I quit my job. And then a lot of people rejected this. They didn't think it was a story. So I had no choice but to keep at it, pitching it, so that somebody would decide it was a podcast because I didn't have any other choice, right? It was like, now what do I do? Um, and I believed in this story. I mean, some. well, there were moments where I thought, is it? Is it a story? Will any? Does anybody want to know this? Like... I don't know. I, I guess I had gotten so personally involved in it, too, that you sometimes, you know, you do I have the best judgment to know that this is a story? I got really lucky, though. There's a woman named Susan White. She's my editor. So in San Diego, everybody in journalism knows who Susan White is. She is a three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning editor. Oh, wow. It was like, yes. And I I, I didn't know her. Um, I had heard about her. And I always thought, oh, if only I could ever work with Susan White. And um, so... I I asked her if she would go have coffee with me one day because I just wanted to get to know her. And we really hit it off. She knew what I was working on. And then when I was getting a lot of rejection in terms of this story, um, I remember calling her and saying, will you be my editor? I don't have a contract. I don't have any money to pay you. But will you be my editor? And she said, yes. And so then we became a team and I think that, and she believed in this story as much as I did, and she wasn't willing to give up either. And so I think that's when um, I felt a lot better about it.
1: What's the biggest hurdle from, uh, this is your first podcast. This yeah. Is first, so, so what was the hurdle of, you're independent, and you're like, I'm going to make this podcast. How did you even know what steps to take to make this podcast even happen? Well,
0: I've been a reporter so long, and I've worked in audio so long. Um, it's You know what? It's not any. It's not different. It's 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 radio reporting. Yeah. Only um with no clock, with no time limit, right?
1: Yeah.
0: And no boss.
1: <laughs> so even better.
0: Kind of awesome. Um But, but yeah. how
1: would you end up being an independent podcaster and getting uh, your podcast from right, right. the elevator? Okay, time?
0: so well that, then that's another story. Um again, by somebody who came to my rescue. Um so here's Susan White and and I trying to say, "Okay, you know, who, who sees this story like we do? And we're getting rejection. And then one day, <laughs> I, I asked Jeff Light, the publisher and editor of the San Diego Union Tribune, newspapers also uh, owned by the same owners of the LA Times. Okay. And I would met Jeff before. And I, I was a reporter in San Diego for a long time. So Jeff had known my work. I said, do you want to go have lunch? And really, I wanted to talk to, to Jeff about a job. And um, he said, what have you been working on? And I started telling him. And this lunch turned into like, it was somewhere between two and a half and three hours. And he's a busy guy. And he just said, and then what happened? And then what happened? He's like, this is just the craziest story I've ever heard. This is unbelievable. Um, And Jeff went to the LA Times with this story. And eight months later or something like that after that lunch, it was months later. I didn't know that he told the LA Times about this story. I get an email from the LA Times. Hey, that story. Do you still have that, you know, what's what's with that story? And I met with him a week later.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, what is it like to have, um, you know, I come from a music background. So the one thing I love about music or I love about podcasting is that I can take an idea that happened in my head and I can manifest it and play some chords and I can write some lyrics and I can record it and make it into a song. And it feels really good to see that song go out and other people listen to it, enjoy it, give me feedback. But what's it like having the story that you felt was uh, you felt was important now being the number one podcast in the country.
0: It's terrifying. And, and you know, I, I think that um, I'm always afraid when my story is published or produced or whether it's like radio, TV, print, like I'm always afraid. I'm afraid that I've made a mistake. I'm afraid that I haven't accurately depicted, you know, the, 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 the scene. I'm afraid of offending people. I'm afraid that people who are in the story might feel uncomfortable or be bothered, I mean, it's, it's, I think that's normal in, in journalism, like to feel that way. I wish I could say, yay, this is so, of course this is, it is so, here's the best part. Here's the good part really though. The story is really about how this young man loses his humanity the minute he crosses the U.S.-Mexico border. Literally, from his name, he becomes a number, to all of these other ways that he stops being a human. And this journey of the podcast is, how do you give it back to him, right? How does he get it back? And this is a story that it's not true crime, that I think a lot, the reason there was so much rejection was, is it commercial, will people want to read it or listen to it or whatever, right? And I think there was a, the consensus was no. But the LA Times thought this is an important story. This this is a story we need to tell, right? Um, because they saw the value in it. And that's why they invested in it. And so the, the yay, rah, rah thing about this is people have responded. And in that response, that's the humanity, right? That's how this man gets his humanity because all of these people who don't know who he is know how important it is that he have a name and we know how he got there and we know about his life. And I think that's been the amazing thing. And it's been the rewarding thing. And it's the thing that was worth it all along.
1: Wow. Uh, Joanne, we are at a part of the show called our Podcasters Picks. This is where I ask today's special guests uh, to give me three podcasts that they love uh, and describe them to the audience.
0: Okay. So, my first two aren't new ones but um, it's the investigative journalists in me who okay. really 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 like them and it's uh in the dark season two um and it it's it's a true crime um with a lot of you learn a lot about the justice system um it's been it's been in the news I get that. Everybody who listens to a lot of these podcasts, I know that. But I just want to say I just such respect for this, um, for this podcast and for this story. And then another one that's Canadian, and and again, this is just to my, you know, former workplace, the CBC, uh, they have a series called, I think it's called Uncover. And they're, I think it was season one and it's Escaping Nexium. And um I'm sure it's Josh Block, yes, the host and the producer. But this is a story that is so well told without any of the like bells and whistles right that you think you have to do it's just this is great reporting great storytelling solid solid writing I really really like that one Um, you know my third one so this I'm just I want to name sort of a smaller one um, that okay so I don't know if they have even a season two but I think there were maybe five or six episodes it was called bodies yes oh you like that I I
1: had um, Oh,
0: did you have her on your show show. I like that uh, podcast. oh
1: man Bit, Alison Barron.
0: Okay, yes.
1: Alison Barron. I, I love
0: the one too where she talks to her mom on her episodes yes. and she, and I just felt it was so honest and she was so vulnerable in it. And, you know, again, just such respect for for what she was doing. Um, so yeah. I really like that no, one. No, I'm a
1: big fan uh, uh, of her podcast. Oh, I don't okay. think it's come back to a second season. I think that was the first one. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's so. I can't good. believe
0: that you had her on oh, and that you yeah. like it. She's oh, okay. absolutely amazing. Yeah, no, I love that one too. Yes, yeah. yes. So Cool. We, should, we, Very share, cool. we
1: share that one. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and uh, Joanne, before we get out of here, why do you podcast?
0: It's just such a great way to tell stories now. Like, again, like as a journalist, um, you know, you only have so much space. Um, you When you're doing radio, it's like, oh, a minute, your story's up, or four minutes, you you can't go any longer. And also, we get to be more transparent. In this story, in the podcast, I'm I, I'm very transparent about my reporting process. So it's like a window in, right? You get to see how did I find out this, or what about this, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I like that. I think it makes what we do, um, I don't know, more accessible, right? Yeah, to, to people.
1: But well, Joanne, thank you so much for being here. It's so nice to be one. One minute we're talking, two days ago we're in talking over the phone <laughs> I know, in San Diego, I know, that's so funny. and now you're here in New York City, yeah. and I'm here in Columbia, and this is such an honor. Thank you so much. and Congratulations on all the success of oh, the podcast. It was so nice
0: to meet you. The, thank you so much. You're I you're really the enjoyed you're the best. this.
1: Everyone check out room twenty. We out of here. Yeah. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our special guest Joanne Farian. I'll have the links to Room 20 provided for you in the description of this episode. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. Music for this episode was produced by Richie Quake. I want to send a very special thank you to my dear friends over at the LA Times, Allison Berrius and Clint Schaff, for making this interview possible. And lastly, before we get out of here, be sure to check out my other show, Silent Giants. My podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. And I'll have the link to Salad Giants provided for you in the description of this episode. Well, I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. God bless y'all. Till next time.